Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the simulation hypothesis. Uh, I think a lot of people have heard of this. Uh, it's it's not particularly uncommon, uh, especially in you know people who are into uh, science and science fiction and those sorts of things. Um, I know Elon Musk has talked about it in public. Um, it was popularized by Nick Bostrom uh, not too many years ago. I think less than um, less than 25 years ago. Nick Bostrom uh, started kind of talking about it and and. Um, yeah, I guess it was 2003, so about 17 years ago. Uh, and it's it's definitely something that's been in the popular landscape. The idea is that there is a strong probability that the world we're experiencing, the life that you and I have, is all part of a simulation of some future society that is running a simulation for one of various reasons. Um, one of the, the main reasons they might do that is to see what life was like for their ancestors, either in sort of a video game sense or just um, just to kind of prove out some theories about history. Uh, and and uh, we can kind of see those things playing out, right? We have some video games and, and different simulations that we do to try to understand history better or to experience it in some way. I'm thinking of, um, you know, the, some of the Call of Duty type games that are out there that in one way or another simulate war in uh, different periods of time. There's even one called Modern Warfare, right, which simulates how war is fought today. Um, so the idea is that we are agents in this simulation, an agent from the, the sort of computer sense, right? We're a program acting independently uh, based on some set of rules. And, you know, if you think about agents and programs, probably the matrix is something that's going to come to mind. Um, you know, famously, there's Agent Smith. There's some really interesting theories about the Matrix out there. Um, Matrix is, a, if you haven't seen it, uh, you should go watch it. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, there are a lot of movies that have come since the Matrix that have tried to, uh, have taken a lot from it. You know, a lot of things that are cliche were today were groundbreaking in the Matrix. Um, so really great film, and and kind of the key idea in the Matrix is that there is this thing called the Matrix, and in the Matrix, you have people hooked in, and they're living in a simulated world, and they're not unaware of it. Uh, there's another great movie uh, that came out in a fairly similar time frame to the Matrix called The 13th Floor. Uh, and The 13th Floor is a movie where they're doing this idea literally. They have these simulations and these simulated cities and agents and stuff, and they run independently. Uh, they're reasonably conscious. Um, they don't really understand that they're in a simulation at all, and they just run this simulation all the time until at some point the um, owner of the simulation might go in and sort of live in the body of one of these simulated agents for a short period of time, you know, an hour or something or an evening, and it it's sort of a kind of a video game sort of thing. You can go in there and live in a world that's similar to a world prior to your own, right? It's a simpler world in some sense, and, uh, you know, do things there you wouldn't necessarily do in your day-to-day -day life, you know, whatever that means. You could step into the life of a, of a powerful person or, you know, go commit a crime or whatever it is that, you know, you wouldn't want to do in real life, but you don't mind doing in, in a video game. 
and kind of do that in a simulation. So, so you know, this is an idea that's been in popular media for uh, quite some time. Um, you know, I think one of the earliest I read about of, of like, you know, movie or whatever was from the 60s, or maybe the 50s. Um, but there are there are variants of this that go back pretty far. Um, some very far, and a lot of them I'm not familiar with. But I'm I'm pretty sure most people are familiar with Descartes' statement. I think, therefore, I am. And I know, you know, I heard that long before I understood what it was referring to. And and really, the idea is, you've you've got your senses, and you can see the world around you. You can taste things. You can smell things. You can hear things. You can feel things. But in Descartes' way of saying it, what if there was some kind of a demon? sitting between the real world and you and modifying the information that's getting to your mind. So you can't trust your senses because, in some sense, they can be simulated. Uh, and so Descartes said, well, I can't prove anything about the outside world because of that problem. But, I think, therefore, I am. Therefore, I exist. And based on that, he could start building a philosophical foundation for for his his ideas. And so, you know, you think about this, right? The the demon interfering with your perception of what's going on around you, you know, sitting inside your eyes, sitting inside your ears, or, or whatever it is, really isn't that different from simulation theory, right? There's this outer universe that you don't have access to because you're in one that is false in some sense, right? You're in this simulated universe. I, I think that this is a bit of an interesting idea, and obviously, you know, I, I wanted to put it here in the podcast because of that. And it would be very difficult for us to be able to determine whether or not we are in a simulation. There's plenty of ways we could we could do it. There's been some papers written about things to look for on the cosmological scale, um, you know, or the or the you know super micro scale that we could look at to say, well, if it acts this way, that's more indicative of a simulation than if it doesn't act that way. A lot of that stuff, um, you know, maybe I'd understand it if I download the papers, but a lot of it was stuff I, I don't really understand. And some of the things I'm going to talk about I don't necessarily have any expertise in, but they're just ideas that, that kind of um, kind of resonate with me when thinking about this idea. So um, one of them is what evidence is there against it? And I think there are there's two pieces of, uh, one one major piece of evidence that says to me that this seems unlikely. Um, so to get into that, let's talk about what the key assumption is of these simulations. And the key assumption about these simulations is that if there's going to be a simulation of all this stuff, you need to have immense computer power, right? We've, I've been talking about it like a video game, and that kind of stands to reason, right? Video games require computer power, and the more advanced the video game, the more immense the computer power is. Computers today are incredibly powerful, and, and they can create some amazing graphics and do some amazing simulations. There's a game called City Skylines, and one of the really cool things about that game is that you've got a bunch of citizens in your city. Right? It's similar to SimCity or, or other games like that where you're trying to build a city, set your zoning, set your power, build your roads, build your trains, and then you're trying to make the city act the way you want. And you might want to have a high-population city, 
but you've got to make sure you put in the right kinds of zoning and you provide power and proper policing and all that stuff so that it's a city people want to live in. And, um, and in that game, every citizen of the city is an individual agent with their own simulation. So when you click on a person or you click on a car, the car has a person in it. That person has a place that they live, a place that they work, and a place that they're going to. They might be going shopping. They might be going to work. They might be going home. They might be going to visit another citizen of the city. But each person is an individual simulation. And that's pretty neat. And it runs on a single computer, right? So it's you know, it's it's pretty amazing what a single computer can do. But of course, the simulation is relatively limited. It it doesn't simulate that much about them. Um, you know, it has an idea of how much education they have and some other indicators of health and and sickness and stuff like that. But you know, it's this isn't an in-depth psychological profile of a, of a person or anything like that. It's it's a pretty basic simulation. But it gives us the idea that even today we can do a certain amount of simulation that's reasonable to do on a single computer. Um, you could you could look at online, you can find videos of people who have taken city skylines and taken busy intersections and tried a bunch of different types of interchanges on them. And because of the way the driving, or the, the agent simulation works, you've got real drivers going real places, they react pretty realistically to changes in intersection design. And so you're able to look at this and say, ah, oh, yeah, this, you know, this roundabout's really good. The inverted diamond interchange is a pretty good interchange. Um, you know, but maybe not as good as a roundabout in this circumstance. So you're able to look at all that kind of stuff and get a, a kind of good view of all of the all the different stuff. And so, you know, we're already seeing kind of realistic simulations for certain applications. And the idea is that, you know, we've all heard of uh, Moore's Law, this idea that and it's phrased different ways, you know, computer power or transistor density or different things have doubled every 18 months for 50 years. And now, one thing you should know is that Moore's Law has really started to slow down because the feature sizes on transistors have gotten down into the, you know, just, you know, nanometer size, right? These incredibly tiny scale things, so small we can really not conceive of them. So small that the standard physics that we think about with electricity and conductors and stuff, insulators, it doesn't quite work right anymore, right? There's just not enough atoms to keep electrons from jumping too far. Right, so all the kind of weird behavior of quantum mechanics is starting to play a part in semiconductor design. It's it's a really an amazing thing, an incredible, incredible technological achievement. You know, just the 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 microprocessor chip inside of your phone or your computer, un, unbelievable achievement of humanity. Um, I've, and I know I've talked about some of that before in terms of you know what it would take to to get where we are again if we had to start over. Um, in, in one in the rebuilding episode I did. So um, this increase in computational power, if we say that it's growing at hundred percent per year, which is what it has been, or we say it's been growing at fifty percent per year, or two percent per year, or one percent per year, but it's it's growing as a percentage. It's not growing as a fixed amount. And even if it is growing as a fixed amount, I suppose, right? If it's growing by, uh, you know, the average computer can do an extra 100 gigaflops of operations per year or whatever that is. Um, assuming that the species survives and that the economy is able to continue producing uh, these computers and we see that growth continue over time, eventually the computers will get powerful enough, the, the theory goes, 
to simulate us, to simulate our mind, our consciousness. And there's a lot of philosophical debate about consciousness and, and the duality of the mind and body and, and things, and whether or not that would even be possible. But you know, the idea is that with this increased computational power, our world could be simulated, like in the 13th floor. And um, going through that thought process, right, you say, okay, what what would need to be simulated? Now, some people say that, you know, it would be a full simulation of matter. Other people say, well, you know, the minds may be simulated in a different way than the bodies of the participants in the simulation, the simulated agents in the simulation. And so there would actually be the possibility for mind-body dualism to be a real thing in that world because your thoughts would happen in a way that don't correspond to the physical you. Um, and so getting back to this evidence uh, against it, um, all this computation, we're talking about doubling the power of computation over and over and over again, right? And so we know that you know, if you do a doubling, it's 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, and it just keeps growing. And by the time you get 20 steps in, you're at a million, and 30 steps in, you get a billion, and, and 64 steps in, you get, you know, some huge number, and a thousand steps in, the number is so big, it's incomprehensibly large. And, you know, it's hundreds of digits long, and you can just keep going with this doubling. And so we say, well, if that's the case, the power will be unbelievable. And that's what we've experienced. Most people alive have experienced that their whole life, whether or not they've realized it or not, right? This explosion in semiconductors started in the 50s, right? And for the majority of people alive today, that's their whole life. Um, there's still obviously a significant group of people who were born in like the, the late 30s and early 40s and stuff that are, are still around and remember a time before the semiconductor or uh, you know, if they don't remember the time before it, they were at least alive before it. But as semiconductors became the predominant thing in technology and in electronics, you know, we've we've seen this continual growth and the ability of these semiconductors has been greater and greater, right? Better amplifiers, obviously the microprocessor, just all kinds of different things have become possible. But there's a limit to computation, at least as far as we know. Um there's still an open question in computer science about uh, this idea of P equals NP. And you'll even see it in popular media sometimes. I think there was a, a book on Bender's Shelf and Futurama about, you know, one book was called P, one was called NP. And so the idea was that those were two distinct complexity classes, uh, two distinct things. Uh, and these ideas, you know, get pretty deep into computer science territory to really understand them. But the idea is that there's two types of computations, and and there's actually more than just those two, but those are are two big ones, right? There's P, which is polynomial, and NP, non-polynomial or non-deterministic polynomial. Um, but we'll call it non non-polynomial, as in bigger than a polynomial. So polynomial is a number that happens through um, raising something to an exponent, right? n squared plus n plus 1 is a polynomial, or n plus 1 is a polynomial, or n cubed, right? So if you have a cube, a square, to the fourth power, to the hundredth power, whatever, that's all polynomials. Some polynomials grow very fast. Raising to the hundredth power grows very fast. Um, some grow very slowly, right? You could raise it to the power of 1.0001, and you're going to see growth, but it's going to take a while. 
But there's classes of numbers that will grow faster than polynomials. And the biggest one is the exponents, right? We talk about exponential growth. Typically, that's a colloquial way of talking, though, not a, not a specifically mathematic version. And exponential growth um, is where you're you're instead of taking the number you're interested in and raising it to a power of some fixed value, you're taking some fixed value and raising it to the power of that number. So instead of um, 5 squared, right, so 5 is the number I'm interested in, then the next one would be 6 squared, so it grows, right, because I go from 25 to 36. I take the number 2 and I raise it to a power, and so 2 squared is 4, 2 cubed is 8, um, Two cube, uh, two to the fifth is thirty-two, right? Like it just, it just grows, and you know this is that idea of doubling we were just talking about. Exponentiation grows much more quickly than doubling. Um, raising something to a factorial also grows really fast. Um, I think, if I remember right, you know, as the numbers get big, exponentiation will grow faster than a. Um, uh, factorial will. Factorial is like 1 times 2 times 3 times 4 times 5 times whatever. Um, you know, and then there's there's other things that are out there, right? There's the Ackermann function, which is some huge growth, and, you know, all these different things, and those all fit into this box of, of NP, non-polynomial, and then you've got all the ones that fit in the box of polynomial, right? Your squares and cubes and stuff. And if something's growing as a square function, increasing computational power helps a lot. Right? If it's a polynomial thing and you add more power to the system, then your your system is going to be able to process it. If it's in the NP side, it you can't buy computers fast enough. You can't grow the rate fast enough to, to do stuff. And, and so some problems are easy to solve, some are medium, and some are hard. And the things that are in NP are the hard side. And I know this is all pretty abstract, right? I'm saying that some stuff grows really fast and some some stuff grows. What does that even mean? Well, it depends on how many things you're looking at, right? If if you're trying to sort a phone book, this is a, is a really easy to understand example. You have to take a phone book and alphabetize it. Um, the computer scientist is interested in how many steps does that take? Right? If I have uh, 10 people in the phone book, how many times do I have to go through it? Well, the, the way most people would naively sit down and write write the program to do that. If they didn't know about all the research that has gone into it, they'd they'd need up to a hundred steps. Right? That's your worst case scenario. On an average you need like half of that. So they just kind of you know chop it off and say a hundred. Right? It'd be ten squared. And and so then if it's a hundred people, then it's ten thousand steps. And if it's um if it's 10,000 people, now you're into like uh, 100 million steps to go through and and sort that. And that's slow, right? Even for a computer that can do a billion operations per second, by the time you factor all that stuff in, you're actually looking at something that might, you might feel a delay. And if it's a million, you know, even, even a fast modern computer is going to take a while to churn through all of the data to go through a million. Now, you could do it a different way, and do it in, you know, uh, uh, well, I think for sorting you can't get quite that good. You could, you in most cases, but, but you could get to like uh, n log n, right? So the, I forget what it was, like natural logarithm or base 2 logarithm of 
that many thousands times the original number. So, you know, if you're talking about a million, the base two log would be 20 and times a million. So it's like 20 million operations. So that means that it'll take about as long to sort a million with, with the good way of doing it, the faster way, the one that's, that's a kind of fast polynomial than one that is like 10,000 with a slower polynomial, right? It'll actually be faster to do the million with the fast way than 10,000 with the slow way. So it's, it makes a significant difference as you start looking at big numbers of things. And if we're talking about a simulation, we're talking about a lot of stuff to simulate. So the question is, what is the, what are we actually thinking about with the simulation? Is there anything that would fall into that that really slow NP category? Because even even the slow one I said that's N squared, that's that's polynomial. That's on the fast side, right? If you have to take two to the power of a hundred thousand, or two to the power of a million, the number gets to be so big that even if you can do a trillion of them a second, there's not enough time left in the universe to do them. So is there? something that can do that and that's a really good question and and the thing is like a lot of common problems you're you're actually going to run into this np sort of problem the one that came came to my mind as i was thinking about all this and reading and stuff was the problem of overlapping polygons okay this is a really simple thing you could do visually right Draw a couple of polygons on a piece of paper. Draw some that overlap and some that don't. Now visually you can see pretty quickly do they or don't they overlap, right? But if you wanted to search for polygons and see if they overlap, <clears throat> you can do it really fast if you're dealing with um, con convex polygons, ones that that are, you know, when you imagine a polygon, when you imagine a pentagon, there's no parts that stick in, right? They don't look like a star. They're all all kind of fat. But if you take something that looks more like a star, you have some points that stick out and some that come back in. That's called a concave polygon. And if you're dealing with concave polygons, it's actually a very difficult problem to determine if the two things intersect. And the reason is pretty simple. If it's a convex polygon and it's only convex, you can just draw a line and see if you go through twice. If you if you do, you've intersected. And if you don't, you don't, right? Like it's it's pretty straightforward. But uh sorry, if you go through once. But with a uh, convex polygon, uh, sorry, with a concave polygon, you can enter and exit and enter again, right? And you're you're not going to be able to tell if you're inside or overlapping unless you're actually comparing a lot more stuff. You have to compare every piece to every other piece. And that grows very fast. It's a very slow process to do. And there's a lot of other common problems. And I'm, I'm probably not doing a great job explaining this. So, you know, an academic computer scientist listening to this is probably grinding his teeth a little bit because I'm, I'm sure I'm playing fast and loose in a couple places here. Uh, but overlapping polygons can be in that slow category. And there's a lot of stuff that's kind of in that slow category. And so if we're talking about a, a real simulation that can operate in the resolution we're actually dealing with, we need something that can do atomic simulations. 
because we can measure things at the atomic scale, right? We have scanning electron microscopes. We have things, technology that we build that operate in this way. And all of that stuff, they're, they're very complicated simulations. Um, you know, this, this idea of proton, protein folding, this happens very, very quickly in nature, but it's not a quick thing for us to do in the real world. That's why they have folding at home to help solve problems around protein folding and, and fig, you know, using it to figure out diseases and medicines and stuff. Protein folding happens constantly in our bodies. And so to me, this idea of like atomic and molecular simulations happening on a wide enough scale to simulate one human, it just requires an immense amount of computation and it may require more computational power than exists or could exist in in the universe we could conceive of and you know you could go a level beyond that um you know what about lots of humans what about the cosmos right we we have all this stuff that we're looking at i suppose it's possible that it's a multi-tiered simulation kind of like in google earth when you zoom in and you get more and more detail and, and maybe there are parts of the cosmos that we can see that are just far out and they're very lightly simulated because we can't even, you know, look at things in the atomic scale that are really far away. And maybe, you know, that's why the speed of light is the constant in the universe because it doesn't matter in the scale they're interested in simulating and the scale we live in, but it would prevent us from actually expanding far enough in the simulation to matter. Maybe that's the answer to the the this big question, right, of, of why don't we hear anything else in the universe? You know, we, we don't know why, but the universe could be teeming with intelligent life, and, and it's not. And there's a lot of reasons that could be. And this is one of the answers, that maybe we're in a simulation, and those other civilizations aren't being simulated. I don't know. I mean, that's a discussion for another time. There's there's a few other possibilities, right? The Great Filter, there's, um, there's uh, the idea that, um, you know we move technologically past radio communications and so that's not useful anymore it's called the fermi paradox if you're interested in looking in it but this is one answer to the fermi paradox but i find it kind of hard to believe that the computational power is there right because the the laws of math would likely be the same inside our universe and some outer universe because mathematical laws come from a form of reason right they're they're not constants of the universe. Now there is this idea of the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. And that kind of takes us towards the evidence for this simulation theory. So uh, if you stop and think about it, right, you learned in high school physics class probably about some equations that map what happens when you throw a ball. And if you ignore friction, I mean, they get really, really simple as far as things go in physics class. And you can say, yeah, if I do that, and if you throw a ball, it looks just like the equation said it would. It makes that kind of arc shape. And and then, you know, you get into some more detailed physics, and they look at these, you know, really crazy things. And and then they come true, right? We, we you know, there have been multiple cases in history where pure abstract mathematics was done, right? Someone was studying something and found some cool mathematical trick, and then it sat on the shelf for 50 years. And when it came off the shelf and found application in physics, it turned out that, you know, when you apply it in that spot, it works just like you would think it works in physics. So maybe, maybe the reason that that's true 
is because we're in a simulation and it's using that those exact formulas like we're uncovering not just a description of the universe but the physical fundamental fabric of the universe when we do mathematics that could be the case that would be some evidence for it right because it is a little strange we use these abstract systems right where we just reason based on a very few ideas i think if you're a constructivist in mathematics you can get down to maybe five or six postulates right maybe less you have to have an idea of addition you have to have an idea of uh well really you don't even need to start with addition you can start with the uh idea of a successor function right if i have a number there's a number that comes after it um i haven't i haven't read the book but i've heard that there's a book out there that studies this exact kind of thing and was able to after like 300 and some pages I, I i'm making that number up it might have been 500 it might have been 100 but after many many pages they were able to show like one plus one equals two and then build a mathematical system after that so we can we can show a lot of our mathematical system with just a very few postulates and every time we discover something it seems to be useful so like the, there is something unreasonably effective about that and maybe it is that this is a mathematical system, and when we're doing this study, we're uncovering the nature of our universe because it's built out of that math in a literal sense, right? I mean, if you're if you're doing if you're in a computer game, and you're you're shining a light and it's reflecting a certain way, um, that light is following a path, and that path is dictated by a mathematical formula. So if you imagine an agent inside of a video game that was intelligent enough to measure that and do enough calculation and, and math sleuthing to figure out the formula for it, they would be uncovering the the system used by their simulation, right? And they would find out that there's there's this formula that dictates how the light moves. And it's a precise formula, and that's the nature of the universe that is being executed. Now, interestingly there would be this concept of aliasing. If you were in a, a modern video game or like Doom and you kind of track the way things moved, you would find a few things. One, um, you wouldn't be getting a perfect uh, square root. You'd be getting something very close to it, an approximation. I think it's an inverse square root. There's a, there's a really famous thing from the Doom source code where there's this fast inverse square root. And what's famous about it is it's a mystery how it was ever found. But it's a way to approximate the value in a lot less math than is typically done. So it, it happened much faster. It was one of the tricks they used to make Doom run on the computers of the day. Because it would have otherwise been impossible to do. You'd also find in some cases that in certain number ranges the data would be quantitized, right? It would fall into certain buckets. So in some simulations, they're using, uh, you know, in, in, say, a graphical simulation, they might be using a 16-bit number, which has 65,000 possible values. Or they might be using a 32-bit number, which has about 4 billion possible values. Or they might be using a 64-bit value, which is 4 billion times 4 billion possible values. But that is a limited number of values. And so 
you know, if you're imagining something where there's 65,000 possible values, you'll see that, it, and you're, you're covering a wide range of these values, you'll see that at the extremes, there's big, big jumps between values. Now, we would imagine that they'd be using a much more precise form of, of math than these 16-bit numbers or something. But we would expect to see this kind of aliasing or quantization where there are some values that are valid and some values that aren't. And that that does sound an awful lot like quantum physics. Now, I will say right up front, I have I, I have a popular science version of of uh, quantum physics, right? I haven't I haven't studied it. I don't understand the equations, um, but in the name, right? Quantum or quantized, it's it's this very small thing, but it's it's at a specific value. And as I understand it, like there are some of these specific values that things take on, right? It's a quantized value. Um, and I understand this from stuff I've heard from other people. So again, if you're you're listening to this and you're a quantum physicist or you've sat down and done the math yourself and I'm explaining something wrong or my impression of the field is wrong, uh, email me to correct me and I will uh, I will do a follow-up and explain where I'm wrong. But that said, and that goes for anything I say in the show. If I mess it up, you can send an email to me and we'll uh, we'll talk about it. Uh, but the idea that you know they take these specific values is kind of a lot like aliasing, right? A specific value gets selected, and then it's there. And you can't move to anything in between these two values. There's also this idea of Planck's constant, right, or Planck length. And that is the smallest amount of space resolution in the universe. Anything smaller than that is kind of in everywhere in that space. Right, it's it's a probability at that stage. Um, right, it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I, I think is is somehow related there. Right, once you start getting very small, you can know the position or the velocity, but you can't really know both. Um, and and you've got this idea. You get to the Planck length or Planck length, and it's it's this small, tiny space that's so small that nothing fits in it really. It's you know at that at that resolution you can't do anything and that to me feels a lot like a maximum resolution right it's like if i were again you know living in say a mario universe right a two-dimensional game and i could observe the screen that i live on i would find that you know at once i can only look at 200 pixels and there's nothing with greater resolution than that right and i can't i can't get smaller than that pixel scale so if you scale that up enough inside the simulation, it would probably look something like that, which is interesting. So those those are the things um, that are the evidence for it, right? Math, quantum physics, and, and the Planck constant all give me the impression that there's a possibility of there being a simulation. Now, I want to take this in a, a bit of a weird direction, uh, and I want to talk about dreaming and you know since this is a, a topic we can't do anything but speculate about i figure dreaming is a is a great place to go because no one really understands dreams we don't quite understand their purpose we don't quite understand why we experience them but we've all experienced them it'd be a strange thing to talk to a race that never slept and you tell them well i'm gonna i'm gonna go upstairs i'm gonna be incapacitated for a while i'm gonna go unconscious i'm gonna very, very vividly hallucinate for about eight hours. 
And then I'm going to come down and, uh, you know, go to the bathroom and eat some breakfast. Why are you going to go do that? Are you taking some drugs? No, man, but i got to get my fix. I need to get my sleep. I mean, if if you were from a race that, had, you know, a world where none of the creatures slept, it would be really hard to understand why you would do this. And, of course, we all do it, and it's normal, right? We talk about our dreams. You wake up, you say, I had the strangest dream. And uh, lucid dreaming is this this uh, type of dream where you are aware that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. And the way that uh, people get into lucid dreaming is they start with a dream journal and notice patterns in their dreams. You know, maybe you dream a lot about cars, or you dream a lot about uh, pumpkins, or, or whatever it is that you don't see as much in your daily life. And so that becomes a dream cue, and you want to know whether or not you're in a dream. You'll do something to test it, like see if you can stick your finger through your hand, or count your the fingers in your hand, or something like that. And if the number comes out wrong, or you can stick your finger through your hand, then you know, hey, I'm in a dream. And then... From there, you can start having your own experience, you know? You can start to uh, fly. I mean, that'd be one thing I would do is fly or jump really high. I've had dreams where I can just jump super high, and it's really fun. Um, You know, you can compose music in your dream. You can, uh, I don't know, drive the fastest sports car. And, and of course, the other thing you're probably thinking but don't want to say out loud, uh, you know, you could do that too. And, uh, and, you know, I've only had one or two personal experiences with it. Um, you know, as a kid, I had this idea that it was possible, maybe heard it on a show or something. And, and, uh, I was able to do it one time. I think I've had maybe one other thing. Maybe I wasn't completely lucid, but I was in a scary dream and I was able to wake myself up from it, you know, um, whether or not that was lucid dreaming or, you know, something I've done a lot of times and just usually don't remember. I don't know. But I've had one where I was at least at least aware, right? I was able to control the dream a little bit. But I've never I've never gone down the road of like keeping a dream journal, having dream cues and, and doing reality checks throughout the day so that it becomes normal. Um, so I can do it inside of the dream. But the reason I bring it up is a dream is in some sense a simulation of your world. You're living in a simulation while you're dreaming for sure, because your body's laying there completely still, and in your, as far as you can tell, you're running around, right? If you think about the movie Inception, they simulate a whole world for the target of the Inception, right? Or the, I guess wasn't, an Inception wasn't a common thing, right? In, in the movie, it was the, they're trying to steal some information through the dream, so the, the spy would get in there and simulate the world for you and get you to divulge some information somehow. And that, I mean, that was another really interesting movie, really fun. Um, so, you know, you've got that simulation, and that, that to me, is kind of interesting when it comes to simulation theory, because there is a simulation, and you can control that simulation through lucid dreaming. Now, I don't have a lot of experiences. I've been you know, reading some stuff about it lately, and I watched a video of some people that were doing it and talking about their experiences after a month, and one guy had a lot of experience with it prior to that month, 
what I found was their descriptions of the dream still sound like dreams. Like they didn't necessarily have total control over the dream, but they could control some parts of it. The stuff that they were really worried about, you know, the the story I heard was from this band called Pamplemousse, and uh, they were the ones that were doing this experiment. And the the guy was in a room full of guitars, and he wanted to create a new guitar or fix a guitar because they were all broken. And so he he was able to like believe that the guitar would be fixed when he counted to three, and at two he got felt this shock of energy when he opened his eyes. It, you know, the guitar was whole and he could start playing. Um, and so, you know, there's a simulation and there's some level of control to it. And like all simulations, the person controlling it doesn't have complete control because the rules of the simulation system are also active. And that's interesting to me. Um, I mean, there's, you know, that, that old kind of philosophical thing. What if I'm just a character in someone else's dream? What happens to me when they wake up? Um, and, and the thing that, got me thinking about lucid dreaming with respect to simulation theory and not just dreaming in general as a simulation well some of the stories i've read about it or i read two um one was from a person i don't know who they are the other is from a, a famous scientist richard feynman um and and these two stories uh that they had a, a common uh, thread, I guess, which is both of these people were very into lucid dreaming. And uh, the one of Richard Feynman's one that I really remember. So he was going on, you know, lucid dreaming a lot. And this guy in this other story had been lucid dreaming, trying to get to some uh, someone that he used to know, and it was getting harder and harder to find her. And she said to him, uh, this isn't Richard Feynman, this is the other guy, I don't remember who it is. But she said to him, you shouldn't have come this far. And after that, it was like he couldn't lucid dream anymore. He'd gone too deep into something. Uh, and the other story with Richard Feynman is, you know, he's doing all this lucid dreaming, but at some point, um, he he had this brass bar on his eyes, and that was what was letting him, in his dream, lucid dream, and he, it fell off. And when it fell off, he, as in the story I read, lost his abilities. Um, he wasn't able to lucid dream anymore. And that I find really interesting as well, because, you know, both these stories have this aspect of doing too much or going too far in lucid dreaming and then not being able to anymore. As though you're monkeying around in something you shouldn't. It, you know, it sounds almost too much like a, a movie or something. And that's maybe what appeals to me, right? There's a bit of a, a sense of mystery. Uh, I read that, uh, Christopher Nolan, who directed Inception, is a lucid dreamer, and so maybe he's aware of some of that and kind of incorporated that into the movie Inception. I'm sure experiences lucid dreaming were a part of that that whole idea, that whole movie, right? The concept behind it. But, you know, this idea, you go too far, and maybe there's something there you're not supposed to do, and maybe that's your, your mind protecting itself. Maybe it's, you know, you're getting too close to something in the simulation, and that's a a firewall to protect you or protect the simulation, right? Maybe there's some buffer overrun you could do. I, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in, in the end here. But just this idea that there's this simulation and there's this amount that you could go to, it, it really all feels kind of like a similar, similar thought to me. 
and getting getting to this idea of a, a buffer overrun, some kind of flaw in the system, I saw a, a speedrun of Super Mario Bros. 3, the Nintendo game, and there was something really peculiar about it. The, per, the player plays as normal for the first few levels. They get two warp whistles, and then they go to World 7, level 1, and they get into there and they grab some... some uh, Koopa throw the shell. Koopa, uh, Troopa throw the shell, and they jump on it in this certain special pattern. And all of a sudden, they jump down an invisible pipe, and they show up in the the victory screen, right where they're with the princess. Less than three minutes of gameplay, and it's surprising because they're not doing something normal. And in that level, there's a flaw in the game that makes it possible to through your motion write code for the processor of the Nintendo, which then kind of freaks out and then turns, you know, lets you load what you want. So the person essentially writes a very short program in binary that has them go to the victory screen. Like it's the next little jump. And the cool thing about simulation theory to me is if it were a real thing, and that was all really possible. Maybe maybe lucid dreaming is the pathway to it or or you know, maybe it's a certain point on earth that, you know, there's this flaw. And if you jump around it the right way, you could write your own code onto the simulation computer that's simulating us. And that idea to me is kind of cool that, you know, you could hack reality or whatever and you know, cause it to do something different. Now, of course, there's the the truth, right, which is, if that's really true, which is a big if, but if it's really true, doing that's a big risk, because if your simulation crashes, they restart you. They restart your simulation or shut it down. And if they restart your simulation, you cease to be. Or maybe they were, you go to a backup copy from 10 minutes ago. I don't know. But, you know, being aware of the simulation, truly aware of it, could also be a risk. Because, again, maybe if you know about it, the person running the simulation feels like that's a spoiled simulation. They cut it out. So it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about. I'll be honest, though, it doesn't really affect my day-to-day life, but it is, it is kind of a fun idea. I hope you've, uh, you've enjoyed thinking about it with me. My name is Josh, and this is Writer Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.